Hello, I'm Natasha Froze, and this is Spectator Out Loud, where each week we hear a few of the writers read their pieces from the magazine. Coming up this week, Paul Wood on Syria's drug lords, Mary Wakefield on the dangers of psychedelic drug therapy, and Melissa Kite on her Builder Boyfriend's AA exclusion. First up, Paul Wood. Abu Hassan puts down his Kalashnikov and reaches into a pocket on his body warmer to hand me a small white pill. Here, he says in Arabic, a gift. This'll keep you awake for 48 hours. He grins and adds in English, good sex. The pill is Captagon, an amphetamine known as the poor man's coke. It can make the user feel invincible and was taken by fighters on all sides in Syria's civil war. ISIS were said to be big fans of Captain Courage, as it's also known. It has now spread across the Middle East. You might find Captagon fueling a party in Riyadh or keeping a Baghdad taxi driver awake through a double shift. It is, of course, illegal and horribly addictive. It's said to be by far Syria's biggest export, providing more than 90% of the country's foreign currency. The Assad regime may be the world's biggest narco-state. Abu Hassan was introduced to me as the boss of a Lebanese Captagon gang. We met through a relative of his, the only reason Abu Hassan is talking to me. He's not the biggest Captagon producer in Lebanon, he says, but not the smallest either. He isn't what you'd imagine a Lebanese drug lord might look like. No bling, no flash car. He's small and scruffy in his fifties, with grey stubble and a weathered chestnut-coloured face. He drives an ancient Mercedes. More in keeping with expectations, there are four or five bodyguards. One, wearing combat webbing stuffed with ammunition and grenades, sits with us while we talk. The mountains that are the border with Syria loom in the distance. Abu Hassan explains how the Assad regime makes money from him. It starts with a call from a middleman in Syria, placing an order for a dealer in Iraq, Jordan or Saudi Arabia. Then they hurry to get the ingredients, what he calls Chinese salts and benzene. These are legal chemicals shipped through the port of Beirut and they cost little. The men cook them up in a vat and stamp out the pills with a machine. Before it was banned, Captagon was a drug for narcolepsy and attention deficit disorder. The body breaks it down to amphetamine and another stimulant found in small amounts in tea. A lot of what's sold as Captagon in the Middle East is simply amphetamine. Abu Hassan doesn't know the chemical formula for what he makes, but he says with pride that every batch gets some extra kick from 5 kilos of methamphetamine or crystal meth, a drug that makes addicts' teeth and hair fall out. They put 8 kilos in the batch for the pill he gave me, so it's good stuff, he says. The smallest order he ever got through the Syrian middleman was for three boxes, the biggest for 300. He holds his hands apart to show something the size of a large shoebox and says that each one would hold about 10,000 pills. He sells the pills for $1 to $2 each, but then has to pay for the road, as he puts it, through Syria. It costs $2 a pill to move a shipment across the border, then another $2 to move a little way up the road to the city of Homs, and so on through all the regime's checkpoints. 
The pills could pass through a dozen hands on their way to the dealers and their customers across the Middle East, the price going up at each stage. In Riyadh, each pill fetches $24 or more, so a box sold for $20,000 ends up being worth a quarter of a million. Much of this money goes, he says, to the Syrian Mukhabarat or secret police, the intelligence services and the army's 4th division, led by President Assad's brother, Maha. There's also a big businessman who controls a number of checkpoints because he's used by the regime to oversee aid convoys. Abu Hassan says everyone takes their cut. Even the smallest shipment means half a million dollars for the people who run the Syrian regime. A hundred boxes will put ten million dollars into their hands. He tells me, let's say a hundred guys like me are moving product through Syria. That's the whole state budget right there. It works the same in Lebanon. He says he has to pay off the local police, the Mukhabarat, the intelligence services and Hezbollah, the Shiite militia that's controlled by Iran and which has fought for the Syrian regime. We're meeting in Hezbollah territory in the Bekar Valley. The towns along the highway through the Bekar are dotted with Hezbollah flags, a fist clutching a Kalashnikov on a yellow background. Posters of clerics and martyrs from the fight in Syria attacked lampposts. The organisation's leader, Hassan Nasrallah, calls the claim that they smuggle drugs fake news. This would be against Islam, he says. They wouldn't even sell drugs to their enemies. Abu Hassan smiles at this. He knows that Hezbollah doesn't need to be in the Captagon business to profit from it. The Assad regime's involvement in Captagon is much, much bigger than just extorting smugglers such as Abu Hassan. Like him, the US government identifies Maha al-Assad as the kingpin, but behind manufacturing as well as smuggling. I was told about a meeting in Washington DC where an official laid out the intelligence. There were Captagon factories everywhere. Two in the province of Homs and one in Hama, in the heart of the country, and several in Tartus, and Latakia along the coast. A paper factory in the northern city of Aleppo had also been converted to Captagon production. That last claim isn't a surprise. Two years ago, Italian police in the port of Salerno seized three container ships from Syria. They found almost 15 tonnes of Captagon hidden in large paper cylinders. The street value was more than a billion dollars, making it the largest amphetamine bust in history. Charles Lister of the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C. says there's no doubt Captagon is being produced at industrial scale in Syria. The figures are astonishing. Last year, between five and a half and six billion dollars worth of Syrian Captagon was seized abroad. The total value of Syria's legal exports is only 800 million dollars. But Lister says the Captagon trade is at least five times what was seized if not 10 to 20 times bigger, given how easy it is to smuggle across borders in the Middle East. His most conservative estimate, then, is of exports worth between 25 and $30 billion a year. By comparison, the total value of drugs exported to the US by the Mexican cartels is thought to be 5 to $7.5 billion a year. Lister says there is only one revenue stream that matters to the regime right now, and that is drugs. There are no scruples about the human cost. 
This is a regime that murdered tens of thousands of its own people to stay in power. These crimes have put Syria under suffocating international sanctions, which, as one observer put it to me, punish ordinary people for failing to overthrow their government. Some argue, therefore, for more targeted action, but people like Maha al-Assad are already under sanction, and the real problem, the more the Syrian regime is isolated, the more it will have to rely on its chief illegal source of income, Captagon. Others argue to bring Syria back into the international community, bribing the regime to go straight. But that would let the Assads and their cronies escape justice. And this is easy money for the regime. The drugs are cheap to make and the market keeps growing, especially now that it's moving into Europe. As Lister says, from the point of view of the regime, it would be crazy to get out of the Captican business. He wants to encourage the region to come together to combat Captagon. Saudi Arabia has shown what this might look like. The Saudis banned imports of all Lebanese fruit and vegetables after 8 million Captagon pills were found in a shipment of hollowed-out pomegranates. This has unfairly hit all Lebanese farmers, but it is having an effect. Abu Hassan tells me he's had to shut down his pill press because of the risk of government raids. He and his bodyguards keep eyeing the road nervously as we speak. He says, we pay for protection, but that doesn't mean we can sleep comfortably. Abu Hassan tells me the story of his life, joining a Palestinian militia to fight the Israelis, then the Shiite Amal militia to fight in the civil war, then moving into hashish farming, now Captagon. Five years ago, his nephew was among a group of Lebanese soldiers kidnapped and killed by ISIS in the nearby Sunni town of Arsal. So Abu Hassan kidnapped the nephew of the man he held responsible. He made the young man lie on the grave of his dead relative and shot him. Then he called the man in Arsal and said, Come get the body of your dog. War breeds men like Abu Hassan. The Syrian war has made many more of them. The Captagon trade will not be easy to stamp out. That was Paul Wood. Next, Mary Wakefield. For about six straight hours after taking magic mushrooms, psilocybin, I had visions of a vast skeletal shark coming at me out of the watery gloom, mouth open, teeth inches from my face. It wasn't a hallucination. I only saw the shark when my eyes were shut. But even with my eyes stretched wide, I felt dread. I deserved the shark, I suppose. What sort of adult has at the psychedelics again when LSD has already given them the abdabs? The trouble was, I'd bought the psilocybin PR. Mushrooms are different because they're organic. All you need is the right dose in the right environment. Just surround yourself with friends. I hoped, I think, that the mushrooms might put right that bad trip because the fear it summoned was still haunting me, and still does. More than 25 years later, psilocybin PR is back. It's strange to see it spread across the press. Don't worry, it's just a natural high. It'll change your life. Just get the dose right and the right environment. This time, the right environment is said to be a clinic under the care of men in white coats. Several of the nicest, cleverest millennials I know are keen to give it a try, and I can see why. What else in their lives offers them enlightenment, now that even the church has collapsed into politics? But it makes me feel like Martin Brody, the police chief in Jaws, watching the happy souls of Amity Island skip towards the water. Get out, it's not safe. There's a shark in there. 
No one listened to Chief Brodie. There was just too much money at stake. So the beaches stayed open. As with Jaws, so with psychedelics. The profit potential in psychedelics is astonishing. A few years ago, we had the green rush, the hot pursuit of profit via cannabis. Cue much lobbying for legalization and jockeying for market position and an inventive list of ailments that dope was said to cure. Brands were built with the speed of gold rush towns on the new frontier. Publicists matched up miracle stories with sympathetic journalists. The new acid rush is, if anything, more intense. Everyone's scrambling to state their claim on a psychedelic corner. Psilocybin, ayahuasca, peyote, MDMA, there's nothing that isn't being rebranded as therapeutic. And Silicon Valley has begun to crawl with startups with names like Awaken and Becoming. There's love where crypto meets psychedelics to solve the opioid crisis. New Life Health is a psychedelics meets tech mental wellness platform, which, as far as I can gather, just means they sell ket online. It's almost thrilling to watch the psychedelics PR juggernaut pick up speed. Amazing the array of ailments that psychedelics and ketamine are suddenly said to cure. Everything from ingrained depression to a little light anomie. And given it's near compulsory for 30-somethings to have anxiety, or with climate change and all, you can see why psychedelics are forecast to become a billion-dollar industry. There's a whole generation to dose. Now that's market opportunity. All great movements have a chief evangelist. And if there's one leading light in the world of big psychedelia, it's a chap called Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. I've listened to Doblin's TED Talk and read his interviews, and it's done nothing to persuade me that my fears are unfounded. He's just such a weird mix of messianic sanctimony and superciliousness. Perhaps you noticed, in the weeks leading up to Remembrance Sunday, a slew of stories about the great benefits psychedelics can bring to army veterans suffering from PTSD. The papers were full of it. Much talk of brains being reset, and of fresh snow falling on the nasty ruts slicing through the landscape of a broken mind. This is the industry's current favourite metaphor. MDMA for veterans is a Doblin special. He'd rather choke on a peyote button than vote Republican, but he's more than aware of the need to win over knuckle-dragging conservatives. There's a good reason his company, MAPS, is conducting studies into MDMA for PTSD in veterans. We don't actually do science, Doblin has said. We do political science. I'm sure Doblin would say that my bad trip was my own fault. Wrong dose, wrong environment. I'd say you can judge a movement by its profits. And the grand and overreaching claims Doblin himself makes give me the proper creeps. For Doblin, the perfect future is one in which everyone's dosed up, he said. I think we're going to need to have roughly 10 years of rollout of psychedelic clinics and that will end up being hundreds of thousands, eventually millions of people treated. This includes children. I think there should be parental override, Doblin said in an interview. If you want to give your kids psychedelics, you should be able to do it. And that's the way it's done in the Native American church with peyote and ayahuasca. The cultures that have successfully integrated psychedelics don't have age limits. We need to bring this back to the family. But why? Why would you want to bring anxiety-inducing drugs back to the family and give them to children with developing brains? In the end, for old dopeheads like Dublin, students of the 1970s, the goal is the same as it's always been. Love, 
progress and unity and the chemical alteration of conservative minds. It's about people's fears and anxieties that have become irrational, he says. And then they don't want certain kinds of change. So his answer is to dose them up, destroy their faculty for rational thought, and the world will be as one. Over the last decade, Scott Alexander, America's best psychiatrist blogger, a hero of the rationalist movement, has examined the claims made for psychedelic therapy and repeatedly pointed out that it's very unlikely to be any sort of panacea. Between 10% and 50% of Americans have tried psychedelics, he's written. If they did anything miraculous, we'd know about it. More to the point, says Alexander, what use is the feeling of revelation anyway? In my model of psychedelics, he writes, they artificially stimulate your insight system, the same way heroin artificially stimulates your happiness system. This leads to all those stories where people feel like they've discovered the secret of the universe, but when they recover their faculties, they find out it was only some inane triviality. That was Mary Wakefield. And finally, Melissa Kite. If AA wants to make its meetings safe, then maybe it should ban alcoholics, said the builder boyfriend, and I had to admit he had cracked it. There was me getting all wound up about why more and more of the meetings in Surrey won't let my friend the bricklayer in because of his criminal convictions and a vaguely expressed malaise about his liking for the ladies. And it was actually quite simple. In this new age of safeguarding, it's clear that the only way you could make Alcoholics Anonymous into an organisation that passes muster for all the corporate compliance that big charities neither either now either have to or want to do is by banning anyone with a drinking problem. Because there is no one so potentially stir-fry crazy on a bad day, or for that matter so needy and hung up on the idea of romance, than a recovering alky, which is why nearly 100 years ago... AA founder Bill Wilson came up with the idea of bringing these tormented people together to share their common problem in a bid to stay off the booze. These meetings work brilliantly if you can get into them. The bricklayer has been banned from nine meetings in Surrey now and I wonder what Bill W would make of it, not least because he he was someone who struggled in sobriety with compulsiveness around romance, which appears to be a big part of what the organisers worry about now. The latest meeting to ban the bricklayer sent sent him a Dear John text after he went there on their invitation to be the main speaker. The secretary running this meeting was new to the area and unaware of the controversy. He assumed the bricklayer's strong message and hard knock story would be something inspirational that people wanted to hear. Three or four middle-aged women sat in the front row, arms folded, faces like hatchets when the bricklayer turned up. They said nothing while he shared, but behind the scenes complained about his presence. Barely a week later, he received a text informing him that he was not welcome to attend again, nor go to any other meetings in that particular small town. I have been, I have been made aware of your history, said the secretary, and I think it best if you avoid these meetings to stop awkwardness and our female members feeling uncomfortable. And he went on to tell the bricklayer that clearly he had issues. Yes, that's kind of why he's in AA, you twerp. And it's why you're in it too. But in fairness to the secretary, I fancy the hatchet-faced women kicked him half to death, metaphorically, after the bricklayer went home. 
I wonder what Bill W would think of the organisation he founded for hopeless drunks, becoming so smug that it doesn't want people with issues anymore. I submitted a 10,000 word document to head office detailing the bans in good faith and have had and have had no substantive reply. But someone does need to call time on the idea that only people who haven't got too many issues can go to meetings. It has become so corporate at the head office end of things that the safeguarding initiatives are multiplying like a plague, potentially to the detriment of the park bench drunk, the newly released jailbird with a tag on his ankle and the poor raving soul with the beginnings of wet brain. The very people who need AA most would be purged from meetings if they only admitted people who allow all the safety boxes to be ticked. So I went back to the meeting and tried to raise the unfairness of it all with the hatchet face women. I put up my hand to speak during the section for announcements and made my case. Their response was to tell me that this would all be voted on in two weeks' time. I pointed out they had already texted the bricklayer to say he can't come again, so it would appear that the re- result of the vote had been announced before they had even pretended to hold it. At which point, a couple of the women made a high-pitched sound I can only describe as the noise mares make when they are fighting in a field. The meeting continued with someone reading the preamble without a hint of irony. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. I got up and left. The Surrey housewives stand together against the bricklayer and the organisers apparently feel that if they don't stop him coming then the women won't come and in Surrey that means the meetings will be almost empty. It's the bricklayer today but it could be the ex-soldier with post-traumatic stress tomorrow and at some point maybe even those who try to defend them. That was Melissa Kite. That's all for this week. If you enjoyed listening to the podcast, why not pick up a copy of our magazine to read more? I'm Natasha Froze, and do join us again next week.